and welcome to episode two of Kidlit These Days, a Book Riot podcast. Kidlit These Days is your Kidlit connoisseurs pairing the best of children's literature with what's going on in the world today. I'm Karina Yenglazer alongside Matthew Winner, and we are here to have conversations that create opportunities for parents, grandparents, teachers, librarians, and all who love children's books to engage in the world through literature in a deeper and broader way. We are recording on March 27th, 2019. Hi, Matthew. Hi, Karina. How was your day? Very good. So I was thinking about you over the weekend because I was in North Carolina for a book festival and I met Lynn Kelly, who is the author. <gasps> you did of- not. <laughs> yes. Um, so you book talked her book um, in our Song introduction. For a whale. Yes, yes, we in did. our introductory podcast. And she was really awesome. It was really fun to hear about her writing and her process, and I thought you would appreciate. Uh, she stood up and she got her purse, and her purse was in the shape of a whale, and it was so, oh, so cute cool. and wonderful. Yeah, I took a picture of her with her book and her whale purse. <laughs> it was, yeah, it was very on point. Sounds like she was very on brand. That's right. Nice yes, job, exactly. nice job, Lynn Kelly. Shout out. <laughs> how are you? Yeah, how was your day today? My day was great. We are at the day before my daughter's fourth birthday. She is a pie baby, you know, March 14, 3.1415. And um, this girl, she is very aware that she is having a birthday. And it is probably what's still keeping her up at 9.30 p.m., so yes. it's going to be a fun one tomorrow. Yes. But so baby we might girls her. Four. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Hopefully not, um, but you never know. <laughs> Is uh, Are you guys giving her books for gifts? Always. We read a couple tonight and she came into our library downstairs where I'm recording and she said, oh, daddy, is that pile of my books? I'm like, they're all your books, baby. So we brought up some books uh, tonight to read that she she cycles through um, books over and over and finds favorites, but also wants to now read them herself. I'm going to read it, daddy. And she takes my book light, even though we have our bedroom light on, she takes the book light and looks at the, the art up close and she She's, she's a hoot. That's just adorable. Awesome. Raising readers. Raising readers. It, <laughs> it looks different than I expected, but I love it. Well, so um, Karina, why don't we get into our sponsor for today's episode? Struggling to keep up with the latest releases? Want to keep an eye on what's coming out in the next few months for work or for your own personal pre-ordering needs? I know as a librarian, I am always looking for what's coming out. If you need help turbocharging your TBR, Book Riot Insiders is here for you. Our new release index available at the novel level for just $5 a month is curated by resident Velosa reader Liberty Hardy from the All the Books podcast. She keeps track of the most exciting books pre-publication so that you can browse them, know when your favorite author's next novel hits stores, or find your next favorite read. Just go to insiders.bookriot.com to sign up. Yeah, Liberty is awesome. Um, She always has such great recommendations, so I'm excited about that. I was browsing for all the upcoming middle grade and picture book and graphic novels, and I I already have too much on my TBR pile, but I was excited to add a couple more. Yeah, yeah, there's there's a lot that she keeps track of, so it's really (laughs) amazing. 
So today on the podcast, we are going to talk about artifacts. So the idea for this podcast um, came because back in December, uh, my husband and I took our kids to the National Museum for African American History and Culture in Washington, D.C., and we've been wanting to go to this museum for a long time, but it's very, it's been really hard to get tickets because you have to plan in advance if you want um, guaranteed tickets. And the process of getting tickets is constantly changing based on their demand. And there are different rules for peak and off-peak tickets. The way we did it is we had to go online the Wednesday, three months before the day we wanted to actually go to the museum. And I put a timer on my on my schedule and right at nine o'clock I went on their website and there were already a ton of tickets already gone and uh, we were able to snag some tickets and my best friend was also planning on going with us with her family so we got tickets for December and it was such an amazing experience to be able to go and see so much just the history and um, just there was just a lot to unpack. So we got there, and what you do is there's two different sections. There's the history section. There's the culture section. So we decided. Oh wait, but Karina, yeah. can I ask yeah. before before you even got there, had you seen the building before? I had not. It was my first time seeing the building. It is such a beautifully designed building, and the color changes as the sun rises and sets. Because of it being metal on the outside, it just it it reflects during the sun uh, rising and and not and that time release you're talking about. I remember the um, the um, Holocaust Museum also had that when it first opened that that they had that timed entry in order to sort of space out everyone going through the museum. So I'm glad you were able to get tickets, but I have never walked through the front door because I haven't gotten tickets. So you're saying there's two two sections to this museum. Right. So there's, um, so upstairs is the culture section and downstairs is the history section. So we went to the history section and you go through this line and then get in a big elevator and you sort of descend down to the bottom of the museum. And what you said about the architecture is interesting because they had to plan it so carefully in the architectural and building stages because some of the exhibits required putting objects in there that were so large that they had to be sort of placed during building and then built around. So for example, the segregated um, train cars, um, there's a full length one in the museum and there are pictures online, which are really cool to see as they place that train into the museum. And then you sort of see everything being built around it, but it's very well planned and it's very intense because you go down and it starts with the middle passage and it's very, um, there are some very disturbing images, obviously, and um, the museum does a good job of warning parents if you have young children, um, images that might be disturbing to your children. And it was it was great in a way because as a children's book person, I've read so much about African-American history, and it was very interesting to see some of the things that I read about in the museum. I would imagine to actually see to actually see these things. I, as said, have not been to this museum, but I've 
toward it in a different way. Many of the Smithsonian museums host large amounts of their collection, if not their entire collection, digitally. You can explore images of their artifacts, many that aren't even on display, because of course they, the the Smithsonian Institute holds a lot of their materials, but but can't display all of the pieces, or some of them are on rotation or get lent out on tours. Um, but they do have these wonderful online portals, and the National Museum for African American History and Culture is no different. You can search through um, the the not only the different photographs and um, clothing and, and literature of the time, but on their website you can you can browse a number of different ways. They they host over or close to thirty. 7,000 different items. I don't know that you realize that that's how much is, is, is contained by this museum, but, but when you look digitally, you can uh, browse by topic or by the date or era in history or by the, the name of some of these different artifacts or just by the object type. Look at the different pottery, look at the different clothing, look at vehicles, look at locations like that. You can even search by place and in that way, follow history specifically i I imagine through the civil rights movement and and the american west and these different seminal moments in in african-american history it's really quite powerful i look forward to walking the museum to see how to see the story that they have laid out for their visitors who are walking through but the, the the pieces they have online we use regularly in our school because they they are available. They are made available for the public to use in that way, and for for uh, really um, curious individuals of all ages to to be able to explore these artifacts more closely. Yeah, it's such a great resource, um, and I think that also while you know, as a children's book person, when I read certain books, it's really nice to go online and sort of see if there's anything that I can see that links back to what I'm reading as well. And one of the things that was most exciting for my children and I um, when we were walking through was there's this um, potter who lived in South Carolina, and he was a slave and his name is Dave. And there's this wonderful book that's written by Laban Carrickhill and illustrated by Brian Collier called Dave the Potter. And I know this book. Isn't it just amazing? <laughs> it's beautiful. Not only has it won a number of awards, a Caldecott Honor, a Credit Scott King Award, but it's also been adopted onto a number of state book awards. So all of Maryland, we all read it for the our Maryland Black-Eyed Susan Book Award a number of years ago, which got it into all of the libraries across Maryland. It's an exceptional book. It is. It's very powerful. And um, what I really um, liked about it was that it was very detailed about this one person that we don't know very much about. We know that he created these amazing pots, and he was one of two people that are known um, during that time period to have made really large pots. And so we know that he was really strong and able to, you know, mold the clay in a way that it would carry um, grain harvests and water and 
So that was, it was just very interesting to read this book. And when we were going through the museum, there was a pot that David made in the museum. And my daughters and I were just like, we were so excited to see it because we felt so much that this book had brought alive the sense of Dave's work and his artistry. And another interesting thing about Dave was that he would um, sometimes write poems or words on his pots. That's what I got out of the book. I remembered that most of all, not only that he was a slave, but also that he, because of his great skill, was given the opportunity to make these pots, which is not something that many slaves, very many at all, were were given the opportunity to do. But the fact that his name made it onto a number of these pots and these original poems made it onto them is is so special that then they were preserved in history. Did you read the author's note from Levan about about how he came to know Dave's work? Yeah, I did. The, <laughs> yeah. From from not only the, the McKissick um, Museum display, but also then seeing one of the pots on the Antiques Roadshow. <laughs> right. <laughs> That's right. It's so interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So we're very excited because Brian Collier is the illustrator, and we asked him to come on and talk a little bit about um, how he did research on this book and how he was able to take the manuscript and also do additional research in order to portray Dave and how he laid out the book. So we have him on. Let me just tell you a little bit about him if you don't already know. Um, Brian Collier began painting at the age of 15 and earned his BFA with honors from Pratt Institute in New York. He is the illustrator of over, I think right now, 30 picture books, including Caldecott Honor Books, Martin's Big Words, which is also a Coretta Scott King Honor Book, and Rosa, which is also a Coretta Scott King Award winner, as well as the New York Times bestselling Barack Obama, Son of Promise, Child of Hope. So here is Brian. My name is Brian Collier, and I'm an author and illustrator of picture books. I paint in watercolor and collage. Brian, thank you so much for joining us on Kidlit these days. We are so excited to be talking to you specifically about a picture book that you illustrated that got a lot of praise when it came out uh, called Dave the Potter, Artist, Poet, Slave, written by LeVan Carrick Hill. Do you remember making this book? I certainly do. When I made the book Dave the Potter, it was um, a, a story that I had never really heard of before. I went online. I couldn't find any information. I went to libraries. I couldn't find any information. So I got on an airplane and I flew to Edgefield, South Carolina, where the plantation Dave lived. And I walked around and I wanted to get a sense of the sky that he saw and the ground that he walked on and the feel for the terrain in which he lived, which was 200 years ago. Wow. That, that, research process feels so unique. Have you done work like that for other books to hop in a plane and go visit that that ground zero, as it were, for research? When I do a book, that's the best part of making the book besides painting, is the research and discovery. Because it's, it's much like a, uh, going on an expedition and, and digging and, and trying to find information and things 
that are not well known or haven't been seen. So when I got there to Edgefield, South Carolina, that I just took it all in. I took in even the temperature, the heat of of the day, because that all plays into the color of the book. So the book is very warm and earthy. It's a reason why the book looks the way it looks and the textures and all the little, the grittiness of, of creating a, a clay pot all came into play when I went down there because I saw all that information on the research. Taking in the location, did you did you have a chance to also uh, encounter any of the pots that Dave created? I know that, that one of the artifacts now exists in the um, African-American Museum of History and Culture in D.C., but uh, you would have, I think, visited there before the museum had opened. Well, what I did was, I, when I went down to Edgefield, South Carolina, for doing the research for Dave the Potter, um, I was directed to a, 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 the town master potter. His name was Stephen Farrell. And lo and behold, he owned five big pots, 40-gallon pots. So I got a chance to put my arms around the pot made by Dave. I got a chance to touch the signature of Dave's poetry on the pot up close. So I got a firsthand view. I felt the weight of the pot. I picked the pot up. I did all those things. I was careful, of course. And um, that just blew me away. That took, that took my whole spirit and just went to another level when, I'm, when I did that. Wow, it reminds me of the line in the book that Levan says about wrapping your arms around that pot, that it was so big that you couldn't even hug it all the way like that. Well, that reference to the beauty and the love and the care in which it was made, and then the power that it possesses once they write poetry on the pot. That's what, we, that's what we're alluding to with that wonderful line. Amazing. Well, Brian, we're talking on the show about the way that artifacts tell a story. And here, uh, you certainly share how how those artifacts inspired your art and allowed you to gather in all that research. Do you have any other words about the importance of artifacts while you're doing research for these beautiful books that you make? I think artifacts and, and history is all around us. We walk past history every single day. And I think the job of the illustrator and the storyteller is to point those things out to make us as a society slow down and pay attention to all these wonderful things that are around us that tell stories. Everything is telling you a story. Now, here's what happened when I was down in Edgefield, South Carolina, doing research. While I was there, they found a pot under somebody's house next to the lawnmower. A pot made 200 years ago. And they built a house around and then discovered it when someone looked under the house. Isn't that amazing? That it you can't you can't make stuff like that up. No, it's it's incredible. Wow. Well, thank you so much, Brian, for helping us bring artifacts to life for our audience on Kidlet these days. We sure appreciate it. Keep up the great work. We can't wait to read whatever you're working on next. Thank you for your time. Thank you. Thank you, Brian, for joining us on Kidlet these days. Well, Karina, I think that uh, there's no better time for you and I then now to talk about other picture books that feature or center on artifacts and the stories and more importantly, the people behind those artifacts. I've gathered a number of picture books and I, I, I ga- <laughs> and I gather that you've collected some middle grade on the topic. I have. Yay! Yes. Let's talk books. Okay. So the first one I want to talk about, um, one that I, I learned very recently has um, the centered artifact is in 
the National Museum of African American History and Culture. And that is the book, Sit In, How Four Friends Stood Up by Sitting Down by Andrea Davis Pinckney and Brian Pinckney. This book's been out for a little while, but it is that uh, story of the Woolworths sit-in, uh, the four African-American men who refused to leave until they were served at this counter. Uh, you know, Woolworths at this time only served whites. Um, and we're, we're here in the heart of segregation and um, this beautiful beautiful book does such a great job in uh, lyrical text describing uh, what it may have been like to sit at that counter and to hear these awful, awful things screamed at you with whites and blacks alike sitting at that counter, uh, joining these men that started the protest, the peaceful protest, uh, where while just hatred was thrown at them. I have shared this book with children and always marvel at how little children realize about this event, how much that they, I think, are shocked by the hatred that goes unfiltered feet away from these individuals sitting at the counter and how we need to ask ourselves to what ways we we may be in danger of repeating that history today. I find it to be a really powerful book, and I found it even more so powerful when I realized that this Woolworths counter is preserved and is in the National Museum of African American History and Culture. I assume that you saw it. Yeah, so it is on the same floor as that train car that I was talking about earlier, the segregated train car. And it's it's a very powerful part of the museum because there's the counter and stools and then there's sort of this digital, like when you look on the counter, it's sort of digital. So um, guests can sort of interact with that time period in a way digitally. And then um, on the wall behind the counter are these huge screens that are flashing photos from the civil rights era. And there's this one that is so powerful with um, a line of African-American men holding up signs that say in bold print, I am a man. And it's just very, it's just powerful to, to stand there and to look at these images and just, you know, they're, they're projected all across behind the counter. So it's it's quite, at least quite an impression. And it's also very kid-friendly in that area because of the counters and kids are encouraged to sit down and interact with the multimedia. And my kids and my friends could spend quite a long time, you know, just browsing through the multimedia and um, interacting with it in that way. So that area is a great place if you are bringing kids to spend a little bit of time in. And this is the value of museums, the opportunity to sit with those primary documents from history, those primary artifacts, to sit with them and to realize that history isn't such an abstract concept that these things really happened. Sometimes when we read a book, I feel like it feels like they're so far removed. This was long before my time. But when you're in a museum or if not able to get there, when you're able to browse this digital collection and see, see that, that these are real things. I loved also that 
you know, knowing the the hard work that goes into writing a novel and illustrating a picture book in particular, to make sure that all those details are right, so that if there if there are children that have not had a chance to see this location, which is probably most of them, we need to make sure that when the picture book brings them there, that what they see is an accurate representation of of what those individuals in protest at Woolworth would have would have seen as well. Yeah. I agree. So let's talk about a middle grade book, which those of you who don't know, I love middle grade and sort of my favorite age group to read. So middle grade is for generally for readers that are between eight and 12, but obviously a lot of adults read middle grade and middle grade can be read depending on what age it's geared for. But one book that I loved was called Midnight Without a Moon. It's by Linda Williams-Jackson. And it's set in Mississippi in the summer of 1955. The main character's name is Rose Lee Carter. And she lives with her sharecropper grandparents on a white man's cotton plantation. And it's set during the same time that a very um, well-known event happened because one town over in Mississippi... An African-American boy, Emmett Till, um, who is a real person. Um, so this this book is fiction, but it's, it's, ba- it's historical fiction. It's based on a real event. So Emmett Till was um, a young teenager, and he was killed for allegedly whistling at a white woman in a store. And the killing was is really brutal and terrible. And after... He was killed. They recovered the body, and his mother made sure that she had photographs so she could share with other people what had happened to him. And it became sort of this um, flashing point where people were really seeing how terribly he was being, that he was treated so terribly. There was absolutely, they just, it was just, it was horrible. So, a lot of people know about Emmett Till, and the mother gave permission for the museum to have Emmett Till's coffin, and um, they had to sort of excavate the coffin because they were reopening the case and doing more research in it. And after the coffin was brought up, they um, couldn't rebury him in that same coffin, so they have the actual coffin in the museum. And also a photograph of Emmett Till and his mother. And when you look at that photo, Emmett is just a young boy. And the fact that he was killed so brutally for something that was so insignificant just felt so terrible. So I felt like I learned a lot about Emmett Till through reading Midnight Without a Moon. And it also helped me want to learn more about him and his life. And there's been a lot of writing about Emmett Till lately. And so it was, it was good for me to learn more about that situation and about his life. Mm -hmm. Yeah. My fifth graders uh, were learning about Emmett Till by reading Ghost Boys by Jewel Parker Rhodes and, and had a similar experience of just realizing the atrocity of, of what happened to Emmett and to many, many others. Support for this podcast and the following message for parents come from Penguin Young Readers, publisher of the New York Times bestselling series, The Last Kids on Earth by Max Brallier. 
Diary of a Wimpy Kid meets The Walking Dead in this hilarious series for middle grade readers. Wimpy Kid author Jeff Kinney calls the first book in the series terrifyingly fun. Soon to be a Netflix animated series, these books are told in a mixture of text and illustration and are the perfect books for reluctant readers or any kid who likes adventure with a healthy dose of humor. Available now, wherever books are sold. Well, let me take us to a different time in history and a different place as well. Um, the next picture book I want to share centers around a photograph. Uh, it's called Jazz Day, and it's a photo that's that's a well-known photo of Harlem and of the Harlem jazz musicians all sitting on a stoop. You may or may not have seen it. I actually checked the archive at um, the National Museum of African American uh, history and culture, and they do not have they they are not the ones that house this photo. So I have to look up where it is. But the the photo is called Harlem, nineteen fifty eight, and this book um, with poems by Roxanne Orgill and illustrated by Francis Vallejo takes this one photo of all of these jazz musicians that were sitting on this stoop in Harlem, uh, and all these children around, and some kids looking out the the windows uh, um, of this neighborhood stoop, and it. Um, imagines what was going on in each of their lives at the time of that photo. In some cases, these are these are historical facts about what was going on with some of the the jazz musicians. But the children, we don't know uh, necessarily who they are. But the the poems go from individual to individual, and then uh, at the conclusion of the book, uh, there's a page that's just black with the white word click and you open up the gatefold you open up a gatefold is when you when when you have a page that's folded over so you open that up and and as you open it i should say that all the illustrations in this book are beautiful beautiful watercolor but when you open up that that gatefold it's the black and white photograph and then on the following page it identifies uh each of the individuals in that photograph and how they relate to the poems that you just read. So it's a really powerful way to get a sense of history and a sense of place and time. All of these individuals uh, doing these uh, landmark things in music and in culture at the same time and in the same place. And they ended up all being literally on the same stoop for this photograph. Uh, so it's a really cool way of looking at history through poetry and uh, through a, a snapshot of a photograph. I love that. It really stops time in a way and makes you wonder and think. Um, I haven't read that book. I will have to look it up. It made me think too of, perhaps you've read this, um, Nikki Grimes has a middle grade book of poems called One Last Word, yes. Wisdom from the Harlem Renaissance. Renaissance. This is like a really good um, like uh, pairing yes. text because that's, poems that she it's interspersed poems there's a, a poem from a harlem renaissance poet and then she writes in the style of that poet a uh, contemporary poem and it goes that way throughout the entire book and it's it's exceptional uh tying history with now but it's such a great book to pair with jazz day as it turns out yeah i love one last word it is beautiful and there's illustrations in it too and it's just really it's just a really beautiful package um okay so next is another middle grade book I, this one is 
is a pretty new book. It just came out this year. It's called This Promise of Change, One Girl's Story in the Fight for School Equality by Joe Ann Allen Boyce and Debbie Levy. So this book follows um, desegregation in Clinton High School in Tennessee, which happened in 1956. And this was actually one year before federal troops escorted the Little Rock Nine, which is um, well known, into Central High School in, in Arkansas, in Little Rock, Arkansas. But the year earlier, Tennessee was desegregating, and Joanne Ellen, who is the um, one of the authors of this book, she was one of the 12 African-American students who was part of that first wave of desegregation. So it is written in, um, in prose, in, um, oh, sorry, it's written in verse, and it's beautiful. It's just a really lovely book, and I love the way it's written. And when I looked up online, um, because I don't, re- I didn't remember seeing anything about this in the museum, but I looked it up online, and they did have a lot of material from the Little Rock Nine um, in Arkansas, but none that I could see of from um, Clinton High School in Tennessee. But they do have some really cool artifacts, such as a diploma from Carlotta Walls, which was the first black female to graduate from Central High School. They had a flyer with a segregationist voting guide, which was so interesting to look through. Um, They have Carlotta Walls' outfit, like one of her outfits. And all that was really, I thought, interesting to see and look at in the context of reading about these initial people who were um, the first ones to walk into an all-white high school and be the first African-Americans to walk those halls and be educated in those schools and what they had to go through and the taunts and the prejudice and the hate that happened there and how many of them were able to persevere and graduate so I really recommend that book for probably upper middle grade students and high school students. So probably ages 10 and above. It was cool that we just had a little moment there where we were circling around poetry. I like yeah. that. <laughs> yes, yes. I actually want to go back to photography because I have a picture book that really surprised and delighted me when I first read it. It's called Take a Picture of Me, James Vanderzee. It's written by Andrea J. Loney and illustrated by Keith Mallett. And this was a um, a story of of someone's great life's work almost being lost to history. James Vanderzee was a photographer, but he did a really unique thing at the time um, in the 1800s. Often you 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 take a photo and you're not always sure of how it's going to turn out. Um, they're they're developing um, the the photos in these dark rooms. But James fell in love with the camera and fell in love with what it meant to take an individual's portrait. And he would spend time in the dark room touching up photos. And when I first read the book, I was like, what do you mean he touched up photos? He would take, as the film had not yet like dried, settled, he would actually take a, a brush and very finely um, smooth out any imperfections he would he would like fix even down to people's hair if they had stray hair going off in the picture he would 
do all of this work to present people looking their best. And, and in that way, he not only earned quite a reputation um, for this amazing work he was doing and everyone from New York uh, wanted to have him take their picture. He ended up having his own photography studio. Um, but he, he made his mark on the world doing those touch-ups. And then he also was a photographer during the time of photography being more commonplace and everyone being able to afford a camera. At the time when he got the, his first camera, um, he had to save and save and save for it. And he was winning. Um, he won some of the money in a contest that he was in. But again, by the time that he, he had been doing this for a while, cameras were more autonomous and there weren't as many needs for professional photographers. And so he set about fixing cameras, but all of those thousands and thousands of photos were almost lost to history until, get this, the Metropolitan Museum of Art needed photographs for the an exhibit that they were doing on the history of Harlem. This is late in his life. They needed... Um, they needed some of these um, photographs and they went into to find that he actually had thousands of photos, just thousands of photos showing Harlem residents and they were all taken by James Vanderzee. And so his art was centered in this um, exhibition that they did. Um, and had it not been for that, uh, it's, it's, it could be argued that, that this time, this Harlem Renaissance may not have been maintained, captured the way that that thank goodness his art did. This um the um gallery was um called Harlem on my mind. Um but now we have his photographs and we have this history and you should look up his work to see the before and after. They have in the back matter um samples too of showing just what it meant to see how he touched up his subjects and made them look their best. And it's just it's amazing. It's just amazing to know that now we have these these amazing cameras in our phones and we can touch them up or sometimes the the tools that we have, the filters that we have automatically touch up our photos to already make us look, you know, Instagram perfect. But but this was a time when there were people not doing that and especially for African American people uh, that wasn't something that a lot of white photographers were bothering with. And this is a man that saw his neighbors, his friends, his family, and wanted to make sure that they had the chance to be shown as the beautiful people that they are. I just, oh, I love it. So cool. <laughs> Nerding out on photography. <laughs> I love the physical act of photography in that way, you know? Like, I feel like we've lost so much of that with so much of the digital advancement. And I have a friend who who used to do, um, used to develop photos in a dark room. And there's something that's so physical and beautiful about how she did that. So... That's... About that, about composition, about mm-hmm. lighting, about everything. Oh, yeah. yeah. And about about just the preciousness of film. Yes. We have digital photography now. You could take thousands of photos and it doesn't matter. <laughs> yes. But it mattered then. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So cool. Yeah. And it's so interesting to expose um, children who are growing up now with that because it's so beyond, you know, what we're used to now. Like my daughters would not, you know, they don't even understand, like, not seeing the photo right away, you know, like, it's like, take a photo, like, let me see it right away. And, you know, that's not how it was when I was growing up. 
Okay, so we have one last middle grade book to talk about, and that is called Jefferson's Sons by Kimberly Brubaker Bradley. Now, this author is really well known for The War That Saved My Life, which was a Newbery honor. And this book she wrote before The War That Saved My Life, and it's the story of Thomas Jefferson's children by one of his slaves, Sally Hummings. And I knew that... Thomas Jefferson had children by Sally Hummings, but I didn't have a lot of details about it until I read this book. And um, so Kimberly is a master storyteller and does a great job with historical fiction. Or Yeah, historical. Well, she's taking this historical event and reimagining it in a way that um, she feels honors the research that she's done about it. And The perspective of this book is from three of Jefferson's slaves, including two of his own children, and it just sort of tracks each child growing up and telling their story and the contradiction between slavery and freedom. And this was really interesting to read in conjunction with visiting the museum, because in the museum, there's a really powerful exhibit after you exit the the area that talks about how slavery um, was spread across the world and specifically to America. And you walk out of that exhibit and you walk into an exhibit that's called the paradox of Liberty. And there's a huge statue of Thomas Jefferson um, with words from the declaration of independence um, behind him. And then surrounding Thomas Jefferson is a giant stack of bricks and each brick has the name of one of his 600 slaves. And it's super powerful because um, the bricks are sort of surrounding him and sort of showing that there's this disconnect between what he was writing about, about liberty and freedom for all people, and then him being a slave owner. And the book is very... um, I thought it was so powerful. Like the second I finished reading it, I just just wanted to talk about it with everyone I knew. And um, I really suggest it. I think, again, this is probably best for older middle grade students, so probably 10 and up. But it's, it's really well written and um, very informative. Karina, 600 slaves? Wow. Oh, wow. That's, I, I had no idea. That's, wow. Okay. So listen, we named off so many books and I know that us book nerds, it's so easy to nerd out over books, but I want to make sure that I mention that all of these books will be listed in our show notes that can be found at bookriot.com slash listen. Look for episode two of Kidlet these days and we'll have everything right there for you. We also are seeking your recommendations for what to focus on next. You've heard us talk about the border wall. You've heard us talk about artifacts. What else is going on in the world that you are interested in, that you care about, that we can look for where the intersection is with children's literature? You can tweet to us. You can email us at kidlitthesedays at bookriot.com. We want to hear from you. 
Thanks for joining us. As always, we would love your feedback on this podcast and always appreciate a rating on Apple Podcasts. When you do that, you also help other people find us. You can find me, Karina Yan Glazer, on Twitter at Karina Yan Glazer and on Instagram at Karina is reading and writing. And you can find me, Matthew Winner, on Twitter at at Matthew Winner and on Instagram at at Matthew C. Winner. If you have a story idea, reach out to us on social media or email us at kidlitthesedays at bookriot.com. We want to hear from you. We would love to hear what you're thinking about and what you'd like to see on the next show. Have a good week, everybody. Bye.